Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. The Gifts of Christmas. We are so excited to be here today. Um, I'm particularly excited because it is the first Sunday in December, and that means that Christmas is full swing in our house, and it is everything Christmas, everything that has to do with the season, and I'm very excited. Um, but it's not only just the first Sunday of December, it, it, also, it is also the first day of Advent. So how many people here know what Advent is? Okay, not too many of us. How many think that Advent, or how many thought that Advent was all about that calendar where you get a chocolate each day of the month of December? And maybe a little bit, but um, no, I I have to admit, I didn't really realize there was much more to Advent than the calendar. Um, But a few years ago, back when I used to be addicted to chocolate. Um, So over the last couple of years, I actually, um, I really wanted to search out what Advent was all about. And so everything that I was finding was just really kind of more religiously based. And I, and I didn't want that. I wanted something that was more faith-based. And so I kind of searched around and um, I found a book that I wanted to go through and I was excited. And then the following week I um, came to work and I found this book in my mailbox, The Gifts of Christmas. And I got kind of excited because I'm like, who knew that I wanted to go through Advent? Mm -hmm. And so I asked Brian, I'm like, who gave us this book? And so he said, um, he told me that we are going to be going through it as a church. So I'm really excited. This is a really good book. Um, It's called The Gifts of Christmas. If you haven't got your copy of this book um, yet, raise your hand. The ushers have a copy for you. We're just asking one per family. Um, But it's really good. It's basically just a devotional. It's, um, you can do a devotion every day of the week. And it's all geared to the following Sunday's message. So, you know, this past week, um, for those who have had the book, you've been able to do the devotions on hope. And so today we're going to be talking about hope. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to give you a little few tidbits on Advent. So Advent is actually the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And um, the word Advent actually means coming or arrival. And it's marked with a season of expectation and anticipation and longing and just, you know, a waiting And um, it's basically an opportunity that we have to share in the ancient longings of the coming Messiah, but also to celebrate in the birth of the Messiah. But not just that, but to look forward to his coming again. Yes. And so how many know that the commercialization of Christmas has really changed in the last few decades? It's significantly, you know, been altered in and... Primarily, it's like, you know, every time you turn around, you know, they've added this particular thing in or that particular thing in. You know, in, in my household, I don't know about you guys, but I said Christmas starts for me on December 26, right? And if you live in Canada, everyone knows that Boxing Day is December 26, and the first thing that happens is, is my wife is out there, you know, and, hey, I need a new Christmas tree, and, and where's the Christmas the decorations, and maybe I need to buy new pajamas for the kids, you know, that have a Christmas theme. So it's, it starts, and it continues all year round, right? I mean, what is it, November 1st, you know, on the, on the radio, all the Christmas songs come out, and then, you know, the Christmas trees are up, and, and then you start with holiday celebration here, you know, I got like 18 words 
work parties and friends, you know, friends parties. And then another friend comes into town, you got to add in another celebration. And, and you're just running around with all the hustle and bustle of Christmas. And, and, and that it can be, you know, overwhelming and emotional at times. And it reminds me of a story, you know, about a, a gentleman by the name of Charlie Brown. <laughs> yes. And, and Charlie Brown back in the 1960s was actually experiencing this same thing where he was just running around with the hustle and bustle of, of the commercialism of Christmas and he was frustrated and he was overwhelmed. And we got a clip for you this morning that we want to pick up right here for. You're hopeless, Charlie Brown. Completely hopeless. Rats. You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. <laughs> what a treat. <laughs> I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That is seriously one of my favorite scriptures. But how many of you, you know, this is a season that, you know, there's, it's an exciting time. There's lots of celebrations, lots of traditions that we have. But there are many people who feel like Charlie Brown did at the beginning of this clip, you know, where, you know, just things are not going well or, you know, you're just going through a hard time. Maybe this is the first, you know, maybe you've lost a loved one and this is the first Christmas that you're going to experience, you know, the season without them. That's the season that, um, you know, my family is going to be in because this is the first anniversary of the deaths of both my Oma and my aunt. And also, my other aunt passed away, and this will be the first Christmas dinner that we'll have without her. And uh, she's been there for every Christmas dinner that we've had for my entire life. So, you know, it's things like this that cause people to really feel like um, just not wanting to go through the motions of, of celebrating Christmas, you know. And uh, sometimes it's about... You know, you just go through the motions because, you know, other people expect you to or because your kids expect it and stuff like that. But it's at this point in our life when we have to really get back to the real, me real meaning of what Christmas is all about. Right. And Christ came with his birth and he brought us hope. But isn't it just like the devil, you know, to throw in those different adversities for you along the way and to try to steal that hope away from you? You know, I can remember, you know, going back even when I was a young child, you know, it was December 23rd, and I can still remember to this day, but on that day, my mother walked out the door 
and never came back. And so the next day is Christmas Eve celebrations, and then the following day is Christmas. And, and I can remember, you know, the, the emotional pain and the drama, you know, for not only myself, but my father and my siblings. And it was very real going through the emotions of Christmas that day right after that particular event. And it carried on, you know, for, for multiple years afterwards, where every time Christmas come around, it's like, oh, you know, all of these, you know, emotions. And, and I almost, you know, I almost turned into, you know, the, the Christmas Grinch, you know, you know, for a little while. And, and Sherry will, you know, attest to that, you know, yeah, when so we first met. I'll throw in this little thing here. Um, when we first got married, um, I wanted to put up a Christmas tree in the house. And he's like, we don't need a Christmas tree. And I was like, yes, no we Christmas do. Tree. He's like, I'm not wasting my money on a Christmas tree. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like, what is happening? So I went home and I, I went back to my, to my mom and I'm crying and I'm like, he doesn't want to celebrate Christmas. And what is going to happen? And this is horrible. And uh, so she says, you know... If somebody gives him a Christmas tree for a present, he has to put it up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, Genius. so I have a Christmas tree. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So anyway, so my mom, me, and my mom went out and uh, we picked out a tree from Costco and yeah. uh, we went back home, back to our house and set it up and yes. still the now tree I that have we a have. Christmas tree. Yep. Yes. <laughs> so and. And so, it, but it didn't end there for me uh, as well. Like when, as I progressed through that feelings of, you know, of what had happened with my mother, I got into kind of my young adult years. And, and Christmas, you know, is all about these celebrations and family and loved ones. And, and the next thing you know, you know, I'm seeing, you know, my friends get engaged and get married and, and I'm sitting here single. And every time Christmas would roll around, be, it, it would just reinforce those feelings of, of being alone. And I remember, you know, I got into the kind of that, that state of, you know, where I was like, almost depressed, you know, walking into the Christmas season. And it just, it was the reality of where I was at. And it was, you know, my, my focus wasn't necessarily in the right place, but it still didn't change, you know, where, I, where my circumstances lie at the moment. So I think, you know, where we want to start this morning is, is hopelessness. And I think that the definition in Webster says is having no expectation of good or success it's not susceptible to remedy or cure, and it's incapable of redemption, improvement, or a solution. And that is often, you know, where we have these, these, these feelings that we, you know, arrive. So maybe it's like, you know, a broken relationship that you have maybe with a loved one at this time of year or, you know, or a spouse or some, something along that lines. And, and it just, that it kicks in and, and that feeling of, as said, a, a synonym for it is despondency or, or despair, which is basically deep, extreme uh, discouragement, right? And then when you're in that state, right, what happens, right? You know, you start feeling lethargic, apathetic towards things. You know, you, you even start to emotionally and physically withdraw from other people during this particular season. But thank God for hope. Yes, thanks for hope. There is a scripture in Proverbs, and it talks about, um, we've all heard it before, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we leave out the last part of that, which says, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. And so even though during Brian's, you know, uh, young adult years when he was, uh, his hope was deferred there, when I came into his life, it was a tree of life to him, right? Ah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but on a serious note, when Pastor Kathy came into Pastor Rick's life, she was a tree of life, not only to Pastor Rick, but, she, but also to the boys mm -hmm. and also to this house here at WCF, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in Jeremiah 29, 11, 
Yeah, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, and they are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And so, you know, if we can look at the basic definition of hope, hope is basically a confident expectation that something good is going to happen. Now, I don't want you guys to get confused with optimism. I'm sure you all know that super optimistic person in your life that is, like, always happy, everything is always good, and nothing ever goes <laughs> wrong no matter what happens right? Mm -hmm. Like for instance, if it's raining outside and uh, need, you need it to be a nice day, like it's no big deal. It's not raining outside. It's sun is shining behind the clouds, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's always that optimistic person, but true hope is not just optimism. And oftentimes optimism can be, can act as a counterfeit to true hope. And so the reason why is because optimism leaves out the God factor and it relies only on the human mind. Mm -hmm. And so you know, it, it says that things are great when things aren't, and it only works in things that you can control. I like what Webster's 1828 dictionary says in the definition of hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those of you that don't know, this is my favorite dictionary. Mm -hmm. um, you guys probably didn't even know there was such a thing as having a favorite dictionary, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way I roll. So um, in Webster's 1828 dictionary, it says, hope therefore always gives pleasure or joy, whereas wish and desire may produce or be accompanied with pain and anxiety. So, you know, when it's true hope, there's still going to be a joy that's associated with it, even though you're going through things. But when it's just optimism, there's still the opportunity that you're going to feel and experience that pain and anxiety that comes along with things. Yeah. So we're going to talk about basically three different types of hope. And there are three of them that are also in a progression as well. So when you start with the first hope, the first hope is called a wishful hope. And this is kind of one that's used in everyday life. It's kind of like, you know, you're, you're on your way to work, you're stuck at a light, it's red, you're, you're, you're late for work, and you're just like, I hope this light turns green in the next three seconds so I can get out of here and, you know, get to work on time. And, you know, that would be an example of wishful hope or, you know, or I wish that, you know, I um, won the lottery today or, or, you know, here's one... You know, I've been hearing since 1967, you know, with the Maple Leaf fans, you know, I, I wish the Maple Leafs could win, you know, the Stanley Cup this year, you know, and, and so it's, it, it doesn't amount to a whole lot of anything, right? It, it's just wishful, it's just that wishful hope, right? So the, the next part of that, though, is, is the next hope, which is called expectant hope, okay? And expectant hope has some progressions with it because you're actually taking an action right? And to, to put something into play, right? So an example would be, I got some apple seeds. I got them in my hand. I take those apple seeds. I throw them into the ground. I bury them up. I plant them. I water them. I nourish them. And the next thing, you know, I expect that an apple tree is going to grow, okay? And so that there is what expecting hope is, is that there's an action that has a reasonable course that it's going to take. But it doesn't always end up working out that way. Like I can go back, you know, to the maple leaf example, you know, right? You got, you know, a draft that takes place every year and it's been 50 drafts, right, that have taken place since 1967, you know, and I hear, oh, you know, we got Austin Matthews last year, but there's still no Stanley Cup that's sitting in, you know, their trophy case at this moment, right? So, 
One thing that I could really relate to was, you know, um, in this ex expectant hope was when, you know, we were trying to get pregnant. And I know I shared this story last time, but, you know, when a couple is trying to get pregnant, there's just cause to expect that there's going to be a baby in the end, in, in the end. But, you know, it doesn't mean that it's always going to happen. You know, you're, you may experience miscarriage or you may experience, um, you know, a difficult time getting pregnant or maybe not even being able to get pregnant. So um, this type of hope is, you know, there's just cause for you to believe that something's going to happen, but it doesn't always come to pass. But hope doesn't end at this level. Right? right? We have a certain hope. And this certain hope that we have is a biblically based hope. This hope is sure. It is guaranteed and we can count on it. It's the type of hope that we can build our lives on. And we can know for certain that we are going to have what we hope for. And this type of hope, this certain hope that we have, it is based on God's word and not my wishes. You know, we all have feelings, we all have emotions, we all have an imagination and stuff like that. And those types of things can all be fleeting. They can change in an instant. My favorite quote is from Tony Miller and he said, um, the easiest thing to change is your mind, right? And that just goes to show me that it doesn't matter. All these things can change in an instant, but God's word doesn't change. Mm -hmm. And it is sure. And, um, and, you know, God has all of eternity to fulfill his promises. And do you know that there are 7,000 promises in the word of God and all truth comes from God? Not only that, God can't lie. He is impossible. It is impossible for him to lie. We can see that in Hebrews 6. We're going to pick up in verse 13. It says, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath, so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure you get to be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given us both his promise and his oath. And these two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Yes. And so here's a, real, here's a key part to the scriptures and a key part to our message that you want to make sure you pick up right here. Our hope is not in these material things. It's not in the what-ifs and so forth. Our certain hope is in Christ Jesus. And it's because it's founded in that certain hope that we have hope and that we can put that in as, as you know, the strength and the, and the strong anchor that we're going to talk about in a moment because it's founded in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, it says, and we're going to pick up in verse number 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It is this that you greatly rejoice, Though, you, though now for a little while, if need be, you, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to be praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it was Jesus Christ who completed this work of salvation when he came down here to planet Earth, and that we have a living hope in God as a result of it. And our faith, even though we might have some trials and tribulations on the way, our faith is going to hold us fast, and we're going to be able to endure through those things, develop our character as we keep our focus where it needs to be in the hope of Jesus Christ. That's right. So now we're going to take a journey and look through this certain hope in Christ. So we're going to start with past hope. And this is basically, you know, the time of Israel all the way up until Bethlehem, the birth of Christ. So I'm just going to open it with this. Like, have you ever waited a long time for something? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had shared this story at, or I had, um, at our wedding, at our reception, when we got up for our speech. I had said something along the lines of, like, I thought this was never going to happen. <laughs> and uh, everybody laughed at me. And, uh, and then afterwards, they come up, and they're like, ha, ha, you don't know a thing about waiting and thinking this is never going to happen. And, uh, and so I was like, well, did I say something wrong? Because I'm like, I-, I thought I was waiting a long time because I wanted to be married by the time I was 17. So waiting five years, that's a long time, this, right? Th- this girl was definitely all over hope at the moment too, right? <laughs> I mean... We hadn't even talked about getting, you know, married. There was no proposal. And the next thing you know, I had found out, you know, um, afterwards that she had already bought a dress. She had booked the hall. Okay, okay, okay. Right? Jay, Jeremiah Bettany says that he thought that we were going to get married back then too. So I'm justified. I'm glad we ended up getting married. But she definitely had a hope and a future uh, in place. I'm grateful that I didn't have to wait as long as the children of Israel had to wait Mm. to get get married to Brian. (laughs) But the children of Israel knew a thing or two about waiting, right? Mm -hmm. Their entire history was marked by waiting as they were longing for this coming Messiah, right? And this coming Messiah was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. So we can look through the Old Testament and find all these prophecies, which there's over 353 prophecies. We won't even get into the math on, you know, how those can all be, you know, fulfilled and stuff like that. But we're just going to take a look at some of these prophecies um, Mm -hmm. in Isaiah 7.14. It says, all right, then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, Mm -hmm. the virgin will conceive a child. She -hmm. will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And then if we jump down to Isaiah chapter 11, in verse 1 and 2, it says, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Mm -hmm. So we can see that, you know, these prophecies, they weren't just like this, like, oh, a Messiah is going to come and stuff like that. These prophecies were detailed. This Messiah is going to come through a virgin woman. And, you know, all of these types of things. And the children of Israel hung tightly onto these promises. And that was the hope that they had, that this Messiah was going to come. Mm-hmm. And that brings us up into the next stage of hope, which is called our present hope. And with the present hope is the arrival of Jesus Christ onto the scene. The Messiah that the Israelites were actually looking forward to actually is arriving in flesh form, and he has a plan and a purpose for his life. And we are going to watch a video clip about the birth of Christ. <laughs> The Gospel of Luke. Luke investigated many of the earliest eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus and then composed this account. And the story begins up in the hills of Jerusalem, the place where Israel's ancient prophets said that God himself would come one day to establish his kingdom over all the earth. 
In this city is the temple run by the priests. And one of them, named Zechariah, was working in the temple when he had a vision that freaks him out. An angel appears and says that he and his wife will have a son. What's this all about? Well, Zechariah and his wife, we're told, are very old. They've never been able to have children. And Luke's setting up a parallel here with Abraham and Sarah, the great ancestors of Israel, because they too were very old and could never have kids. Yet God gave them a son, Isaac, which is how the whole story of Israel began. And so Luke's implying here that God's about to do something that significant for this people once again. The angel tells Zechariah to name the son John. And then he says that the son's going to fulfill a promise of Israel's ancient prophets, that somebody would come one day to prepare Israel to meet their God when he arrived to rule in Jerusalem. Because right now, Jerusalem is ruled by the Romans. Yeah, specifically, it's governed by a man named Herod, who's a puppet king under the Roman Empire. And so the Jewish people wanted nothing more than to be free and govern themselves in their own land. So this is shocking news. Everything's going to change. God's on his way. But how is he going to arrive? Well, to find out, Luke takes us out of Jerusalem and then up into a small town in the hills of an out-of-the-way region called Galilee. And there we find a young woman named Mariam, or we call her Mary. She was engaged to be married. And then an angel appears to Mary saying that she's going to have a son. She's supposed to name him Jesus, which in Hebrew means the Lord saves. And he will be a king like David who will rule over God's people forever. And then Mary asks, okay, well, how is this possible? Because I'm a virgin. And she's told that the same Holy Spirit that brought life and light out of darkness in Genesis chapter 1 is going to generate life inside her womb. God is about to bind himself to humanity through the conception and the birth of the Messiah. And so Mary goes from some backwoods no-name girl to the future mother of the king? Exactly. In fact, she sings a song about how this reversal of her own social status points to a greater upheaval to come. Through her son, God's going to bring down rulers from their thrones and exalt the poor and the humble. He's going to turn the whole world order upside down. So when Mary was really pregnant, she and her fiancé, Joseph, had to go down to Bethlehem. Yeah, there was a decree across the Roman Empire about new taxes, and so everybody had to go get registered in the town of their family line. There were so many visitors in Bethlehem, they can't find a guest room. And so the only place they can find is a spot where animals sleep. Now nearby were some shepherds with their flocks, and an angel appears, which, of course, freaks them out. But they're told to celebrate because tonight in Bethlehem, a savior has been born. Yeah, they're told to go and find this baby, and they'll know that it's the Messiah because he's going to be wrapped up and laying in a grimy feeding trough. Yeah, which is pretty gross. Totally. And then these shepherds, who aren't very clean themselves, they go and find the newborn Jesus in this really dingy place, and their minds are blown. They go home wondering what on earth is about to happen. And this is all really strange. I mean, if God's really coming to save the world, this isn't how you would expect him to arrive born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl, celebrated by no-name shepherds. Exactly. I mean, everything is backwards in Luke's story, and that's the point. He is showing how God's kingdom was first revealed in these dirty places among the poor, because Jesus is here to bring salvation by turning our world order upside down. It's Christmas time. So, 
that there, you know, is a story of the birth of Christ the Messiah, and, and that there is the future hope of God that just arrived in human flesh here on the planet. And the great part about this story is, is yes, we celebrate his birth at Christmas time, but there's also the part where Jesus grows up and he becomes a man who's the son of God and he's there to fulfill a plan. And that plan was at the work that he accomplished at Calvary at the cross, where he, brought, he, he shed his blood for our sins. He went into the grave for three days and kicked devil butt. And then he came back out with the keys to death and hell in the grave. And he basically then you know, said he rose again to resurrected life. And through that, we are now living in the promises that God has for us. And there are great gifts that he gave us through that work that he did when he redeemed mankind. So I'm going to share a secret with you guys. It's found in Colossians 1.27. It says, and this is the secret. Christ lives in you. And this gives you the assurance or the hope of sharing his glory. And so because of what Christ did for us on the cross, we now have an anchor for the storms of life. And uh, in Hebrews, if we go back to Hebrews 6, we jump down to verse 19, it says, Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. And this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. And so Brian's going to debut on his um, acting career here. And uh, he's just going to act out a little bit. I'm just going to tell you guys about... we got to make sure um, this is still uh, tight, you know, yeah. I wasn't sure... <laughs> So the purpose of an anchor, um, the first purpose is to keep you from drifting, right? Anybody who has a boat knows that if you don't want to go out into uncharted water, you're going to let down your anchor um, if you want to stay in a certain place. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's easy to drift when you're yeah. out on the water. But the same thing in life can happen is that it's easy to drift when we're um, going mm -hmm. through storms and, or when we're going through things in life. And so that anchor will God. draw us back in. And Christ is the anchor and he will draw us back mm -hmm. in. The second thing is that it gives us stability during the storm. And we all know that life throws storms our way. And so if you want to reduce that pitch and roll, yes. then you let down your anchor. And Pastor Dave even mm -hmm. told me um, this morning, I, I hope I get it right, but he said you throw the anchor off the front of the boat, and mm -hmm. that helps you keep your direction in the way that you want to go. And so our anchor is Christ mm -hmm. and, uh, we need, and, and what he did on the cross. Yes. And see... There's, there's some other things that are really important about anchors as well. So you take a look at this anchor right here, you know, that I, I happened to borrow from Ken Boss this morning. And his boat, you know, is probably, you know, 20 feet or so, and he puts it down in the Detroit River. But it's significantly different than the size of an anchor off an ocean liner, right? If you look at an ocean liner, it's like huge. And so if I put that anchor on that ship, it's not going to do anything, okay? And so God's put on the inside of us, Plans, purposes, dreams, God-sized dreams, okay? And we're a ship, okay? And if we're anchored into something, you know, that's not a solid anchor, you know, like drugs, alcohol, or, uh, you know, wealth, money, family, whatever it may be, it's not going to be a sure anchor. But if we got a God-sized dream, we got a God-sized plan for our lives, we need a God-sized anchor. And that anchor is Christ Jesus, and it's sure, and it's a foundation that is not going to disappear. It's not going to, you know, melt away, and we can hang on to it. And that there is one of the things that Christ, 
Christ gave us in his hope. That's right. And because of what he did on the cross and because we have the cross, we now have a future hope. And so, you know, the season of Advent is really, um, it's also about preparing our hearts for what's to come, for Christ coming back again. You know, we long for a day when everything will be made new here on this earth. And we all know that we live through pain and suffering on this earth, but we can wait with eager anticipation for that day when Christ comes back to make all things new. And here is the key. That that little baby that was wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in that dirty, stinky manger, that he grew up to be the Messiah who was going to come, die on the cross, and shed his blood for our sins so that we could be made whole. And not only that, it doesn't stop there. He didn't just die. He rose again from the grave, and he is alive today, and he is coming back for us because we are his children, and he loves us, and we can hold on to that future hope. We're going to take a look in Titus 2, um, starting in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. we got to look for it. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Yes. I love that scripture. It's one that I remember when we were in youth group many, many years ago. And, uh, you know, we had to memorize that scripture. And it's one that actually, you know, took root in my life and uh, have always remembered that ever since. So just remember when your children are learning, you know, things in the ministries and they, and they remember those scripture verses that they stick with them and they can hold, hold firm in their lives. But we wanna, we're going to bring you back to a story because we want to transition, as you said, from, from that present hope, right, to the future hope right, in Christ Jesus. And I think a good way for us to be able to look at that is through the story of Lazarus. And so in John 11, it talks about a man named Lazarus. And I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this for you, but I'm going to uh, end up with a, a few verses in here. So Lazarus was a man who, is, you know, was friends with Jesus. And at one point in his life, he wasn't doing too well. And so his sisters, Mary and Martha, you know, send word to Jesus who's hanging out in another town. And they said, hey, Lazarus isn't doing so well, and they're expecting, you know, Jesus come. And instead, Jesus decides, it says, to tarry for a little while longer. And, um, you know, so basically, he, he, just, he was hanging out. And, and then the next thing you know, you know, a few days passes, and Jesus is showing up on this, and just, Jesus decides to come, and he's showing up on the scene. And at this point, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Okay, and so it says here that... Mary, Mary and Martha, and I'm going to pick up, it says in John 11, we're going to start in verse number 18, okay? And it says, and when, Mary, when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she, sent, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would have not died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who was sent, sorry, the one who has come into the world from God. And then you jump ahead a couple more verses into verse 32, and then Mary decides to come out of the house, and she arrives, and she saw Jesus, and she fell at his feet, and she says, 
Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. So it's the same circumstance that comes over. And I really look at it the same way that often we do in our lives too, where it's like, you know, Jesus, you know, you, you showed up here today, but, you know, it would have really been nice if you would have showed up last month, you know, when my marriage was falling apart and I really needed you. And at that point, you know, you were nowhere to be found. And, you know, but, you know, where were you then, right? Or, you know, where my, my family was sick, you know, last year, where, where were you? I know you're here today, but, but you know, Lazarus, my brother, it's great, that you, but, but he's dead, right? And, and it's dead. And we, we look at these circumstances in our lives, right? You know, these lost opportunities, you know, the deadness of, of failure or our dreams that have been set aside. And so Christ there is here on the scene, and, then we're, and we're speaking to him in our frustration about, you know, where were you at the moment? But he uses a word here, and I want to elaborate on this for just a moment. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you, when you take a look at the context of where that started from, it goes back into the Old Testament in the book of Exodus chapter 3, and it's talking about how Moses is about to go see the children of Israel, and he's about to go see Pharaoh. And, and he says, who am I going to say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am that I am sent you. Right? And, and, there's, and what does that word I am mean? And, it, and see, I am, it captures, it's the self-existent one. It's the eternal God. It's the God who, who was and is and is to come. He is life itself. And the fullness of all of creation is wrapped up into that statement, I am. Because there's no other words that you can use to describe God. He is just, he's indescribable. So he says, I am. And so, and we move forward into the New Testament, and Christ uses this phrase about seven times. He says, and you're probably familiar with somebody, he says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says that in another verse, he, he talks about, and he says, um, I'm going to put my note out on it. It says, one other verse it says, he talks about, I am the light of the world. That's what I want to say. He says, I am the light of the world. Sorry about that. And so, he says, and then it jumps into John in another verse where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says here in John 18, 4 through 6, and, and it talks about, it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, whom seek ye? Because they were coming here to arrest Jesus. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. And as soon as he said that unto them, he said, when he said, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. And so the fullness of Christ is fully revealed in this moment where he says, Hoop seeking, he says, I am. And they all basically went boom and fell backwards to the ground underneath the power. And then Christ puts his hands out and says, all right, arrest me. I have a plan that I have to fulfill this day. And so I want you to capture that moment and the power of it because now we go back to the story of Mary and Martha and Jesus is talking about their brother who is dead. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? And he said, now you get this part of this church. He says, I am the resurrection. He says, I am the fullness of life itself. 
nothing exists outside of me. And though your brother may be dead in the grave right now, he's not going to stay there because I am the resurrection. And he's going to come out of that grave. And just like he can walk back into those dead circumstances we talked about a moment ago where your dream, it was dead and lying on the ground. Well, guess what? God can resurrect dead things and he can bring them back up. That marriage situation, you know, where you're saying it's done and over with. It's not because God can resurrect and bring to life those things even though we've already written them off. And so there's power in the resurrection. And Christ not only then went on and resurrected Lazarus, but then he resurrected after he rose from the, from, from the dead, after he died on that cross. And he's coming back, which is what our future hope is in God, because he's going to resurrect all the dead saints that are up to him. And he's going to resurrect this planet that is dead and decaying. And he's going to bring life and hope. And that is what our future is in Christ. And so you guys see that it's not a hope in something. It's a hope in someone right? You know, we can all sit here and we can say, you know, I hope I can make it one more day. I hope that things will get better. I hope that this situation will be done and over with soon. And we say, you know, all these hope things. But you know what? Real hope, that certain hope in Christ, doesn't just say that. It says, you know what? Despite the fact that I'm walking through hell right now, despite the fact that everything's against me and I uh, can't even see where I'm going and I don't even know what's going to happen, despite the fact that everybody around me seems to be dying, I know that God is still good. I know that he is still God and he still has resurrection life inside of him. And so, um, but in Luke 18, Jesus tells a story um, about the persistent widow. And for time's sake, I'm not actually going to tell you the story. Um, But right now, the key part that I want to get is in the first verse. And we all know that Jesus told stories to kind of accentuate his point. But he says, in Luke 18, 1, it says, One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. And when you feel like you are lost, when you feel like you don't have hope anymore, and that you just can't make it one more day, and you just can't take one more step, you can do two things that will solidify that hope in your life. You can always pray and never give up. Right? Prayer goes such a long way. And when we pray, God is going before the Father, and he is making a, a petition on our behalf. And so we just, we can pray, we can always pray, but it doesn't stop there. Never give up. How many times do we give up one step before the end? How many times do we stop before, you know, maybe two seconds before we would have gained victory or had our breakthrough? Never give up. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when, you know, we can use this as well when there's people around us that have lost their hope. Because I'm sure you guys can all say that you know at least one person in your life who has felt hopeless. And so share that hope that you have on the inside of you. Mm-hmm. Share that hope with others. Give it to them. And I'm not talking about going out and, you know, witnessing to people or throwing tracks at people or whatever. What I'm talking about is just genuinely loving people. Just giving that love that God has on the inside of you and giving it to others. You know, a little bit goes a long way. Yes. So you got the communion elements that are in your hand this day. And with this, you know, Christ, Christ died on that cross for our sins. And with it, his body was broken. And it talks about how we do this. We take communion and we partake in this as a remembrance of what Christ did for us. And that his body was broken for us. And that he is our hope. 
And with this, you can take your, the bread that we have, Jesus, who is the bread of life. And as we hold this cup, Father, I thank you that you shed your blood on the cross so that we could have life, that you brought hope into our world, that we could live again. I thank you, Father, that through this blood, we now have resurrection life. And so we thank you, Father, that you are speaking hope into the lives of each person within the sound of my voice. In Jesus' name.